So one of the regular topics of conversation I hear in our world today is around the topic of rest, right? Like we, we hear a lot about that conversation. And it's, and it's not just in spiritual circles, right? You'll hear it from everybody, whether no matter where you are in your faith journey, rest, slowing down, work-life balance. Rest is in vogue right now. Like we're talking about it a lot. And I'm sure you've heard it and most likely you've even thought about it yourself. And ironically, most of the time our attempts at rest aren't actually producing the results that our souls are longing for. But instead of realizing that maybe we're trying to solve the wrong problems or reconfiguring our strategies or looking for different solutions, our angst just increases and it compounds the issue. We're, we're still longing for a rest that we can't find. And I love rest. You can ask Meredith. Like, if napping was a spiritual discipline, then I'm a professional napper. Like, and it, maybe it is. Like, that's an opinion. But um, I, I, I have rhythm in my life. I have, like, rhythms of stead, or steadfast. I have rhythms of Sabbath. I have rhythms of rest and recharge and renewal that comes regularly that I've placed in my calendar to make for sure that I have rest in my life. And all of that is extremely needed. But even with that, it seems as though this trend in society has caused some unhealthy issues as well, some unhealthy tendencies. So for example, life is full of ebb and flow, and we all go through seasons of fullness, of rest and ease, and then all of us go through seasons of grind, right? Where the exhaustion increases and the margin decreases, and we're going to bed tired. And it's important to remember that um, if you feel exhausted in this season, that is not a simple indicator. It doesn't just naturally mean that something is wrong in your life. Maybe that's exactly where God wants you to be. We, we go through seasons of, of grind and exhaustion. But also, it's caused passion to move from being seen as a, um, as a virtue into being considered a threat to our emotional health. Why pour ourselves out for something, right? Why pour ourselves into our jobs or into a relationship? Why be passionate about things like the church, there's an idea, or your faith? Because what if you get taken advantage of? What if in the midst of pouring yourself out, you begin to realize that all of a sudden you're running dry and that you're empty? We, we have forsaken passion to protect Ourselves And listen, I get it. The last few years have been hard for many of us. And in many different ways, no doubt. Like anxiety and depression are at an all-time high. The rates of, of divorce continue to increase. And the statistics don't differ between Christians and other people, which is just heartbreaking, right? Uh, like we're in the midst of the most polarized politically society that we've experienced in our lifetime right now. Like people are losing jobs because of the economic crisis. They're stressed about where they're gonna, whether or not they're going to be able to make ends meet. The amount of conversations I've had with people where they have lost or severed relationships where bridges has been burned is just heartbreaking to me. And on top of that, like there's just so much in the day-to-day -day that's keeping us anxious and stressed. Like burnout is at an all-time high. And those are real issues that need to be solved. 
Like there, there are real problems that need real solutions, real answers. We need real health and restoration. We need to fix those things. But in the midst of some of the legitimate tendencies, I've also recognized that something else has snuck into the party. So I read a, an article earlier this week from a pastor, and he described what that was in this way. It's a kind of selfish preservation an exchange of sacrificial love for acceptable ease. I'm concerned that we are in danger, listen to this, of trading burnout for not burning at all. We are swapping sustainability for mediocrity. I don't believe in just sucking it up and grinding it out for its own sake, but I am worried that the hearts of many have stopped pressing into the promises that God has for them. To be clear, if you are overwhelmed with anxiety or struggling with fatigue, by all means, tend to it. That is the godly and wise thing to do. But it's not the legitimate things that I'm worried about. It's the temptation to shrink back because, society, because of society's lowered expectations. Oof, that got me this week. That, that just wrecked me. And I wonder if some of us could relate. Also, I just want to point out, we love family here, and obviously we're one big room, so we welcome the noise. This is a good thing for those of you that are new and not used to having the children here running around. This is like what we want in this season. We value it. We love the hearts of those children. Like, there is no JV Holy Spirit. They can experience God in the exact same way that we can. Amen? Right? So let's continue on. I've wondered if some of us have exchanged burnout for not burning at all. And I don't want any of us to become a statistic, but hear me on this, God has so much more for you. This morning I want us to take a look at this moment in the scriptures where we see a life poured out for Jesus in the midst of lesser than expectations. And we've been in a series called The Burning Life, and this passage in particular does not have anything to say about burning or fire, but I think you'll get the picture as we continue to read through the passage. In the last few weeks, I've tried to keep things really practical, real tangible, like we talked about reading scripture, praying, we talked about fasting, like we've, we've made it as tangible as possible. This morning is not that. Rather, I, I just want to invite you guys to expand your imaginations to immerse yourself in the narrative of this passage and see if you might find yourself here. Expand your imaginations to see and comprehend what your life could be like. So you ready to dive in? Sweet, okay, let's roll. Um, John chapter 12, starting in verse one. John chapter 12, verse Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay, so Jesus is in Bethany with some close friends just six days before Passover, which means, by the way, if you've read ahead in the Bible, um, the, yeah, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, um, uh, it's also six days before he was betrayed and admitted to be crucified. Jesus is about to die. This is days before he climbs up on a cross for the world. So keep that in the back of your head. The text points out this is where Lazarus was, or if you've been watching The Chosen, where Laz was. 
Oh, gosh. I, I love The Chosen, and, like, I'm probably one of its biggest supporters, not financially, emotionally, but, like, um, like this was just a weird... Con- I mean, why did they have to make him Laz? Like, it just feels corny to me. Okay, but anyway, so this is where Laz lived, and then we read whom Jesus has raised from the dead. That's pretty cool, <laughs> right? Wow. But that moment when Jesus raises him from the dead was the catalytic moment that set the plot to kill Jesus in motion. So he raises him from the dead and more people begin to believe that he is who he says he is and the religious leaders of the day are infuriated with that and decide, okay, we gotta kill this guy. So this is the moment, boom. And so what you've got in the book of John, this is a turnkey moment. Momentum is building. The tension is in the air. And Jesus is eating dinner in Bethany. He's just, he's just eating dinner. Look at verse 2 with me. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those, uh, and La- while Lazarus was among those, Reclining. I said that so weird. Let me read that again. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So I love the dramatic irony tucked into this. So we have Jesus who is about to die, and he's the one that knows what's about to happen. And obviously we as the readers know what's about to happen, but nobody else in the story knows it. They don't realize Jesus is eating a beautiful dinner with his close friends. We have Martha, we have Lazarus. If we continue reading, we see that Mary and Judas are there, and in both the accounts of Mark and Matthew's Gospels, it also reveals to us that the rest of the disciples are there as well. They're all there, but none of them realize that they're caught up in God's cosmic plan to renew all things, and it's unfolding right before their eyes. Martha is doing her thing. Laz is apparently doing his thing, reclining. And then Mary... Verse 3, Mary took about a pint of purinard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love this text. Step into the story with me for just a moment. So you're at house church. You're eating around the dinner table. And Jesus himself is teaching, which is a, kind of a big deal, right? And Kirsten gets up from the table, goes to her room for a second, comes back out with this expensive bottle of perfume, breaks it, drops to his feet, and pours it out all over his feet and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. It doesn't take cultural context to realize that this moment would have been awkward, right? Like, that would have been kind of weird for us, too. Washing people's feet wasn't uncommon in their culture, but it was actually reserved for specific relationships, a slave to a master, or as a sign of devotion and love and honor from a wife to a husband or the children to their father, but also a disciple to the teacher. And I've thought about this, like, and this gripped me earlier on this week. Um, This is before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, How beautiful of a moment. And I just started asking to myself, I wonder if this inspired him, right? Like, I wonder if, like, this moment moved Jesus, which then eventually resulted in 
him washing his disciples' feet. Now, of course, okay, divinity, Jesus, he's aware of what's going on. He knows all things, so he knew that this was going to happen. He's omni or omniscient. He knows everything. He's all-knowing. But like, if you, if you recognize it from the fact of Jesus was human and he is moved by people. And I kept asking myself the question, like, when was the last time my faith, my worship, my actions actually moved Jesus? He's already aware, he's, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, but still. Like, think about that. I mean, the, the moment when Jesus is preaching in the house and then a handful of friends bring the paralytic to Jesus, they pull him down through the house, and Jesus looks at them and he says, your faith, not the, the paralytic's faith, but the friend's faith is what catalyzed his action. When was the last time our devotion to Jesus actually inspired him into action? But keep reading in verse 4. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was actually put into it. So I love John's commentary here. He shares some tea with us around Judas's ulterior motives. And the reality is he wasn't, he shares with us that he wasn't just about to betray Jesus, but he was actually keeping some of the ministry money for himself. But even with his false motives, he makes a really good point, right? Verse five, wasn't this perf- why wasn't this perfume sold? and the money given to the poor. It was worth a year's wages. I don't know how much money you make in a year, but just imagine a year's wages in an object in your home. Like this is like family heirloom status. This is a valuable, precious thing. This is college fund, your your life's savings, or whatever it is. Poured out in seconds, gone. Extravagant? No doubt. Wasted? We'll see. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So there's so much we could learn from Jesus's words here, and we don't have time to get into all of it. But what I want us to notice is that Jesus defends her. He says, hey, hey, let her be. Don't stop her. Her act is a prophetic sign of what I have actually come to do, what I am going to do. She knows me in a way that you don't. In this passage, in these eight verses, we're exposed to a beautiful picture of extravagant, lavish, passionate, foolish devotion to Jesus. A life wasted on him. So I want to offer you a few things from this passage that I believe are actually words for our community that will, I hope, resonate with us in our time. The first one is a question. Where is your focus? Mary wastes a large amount of money considering the relative, like, financial status of the group that she was in. Our text says that Judas 
asks the question, but if you pull in the other passages where this is in the other gospels where they account of this story, we recognize that it's actually several disciples that are asking this. Maybe Judas was the one that said it, but a lot of them were feeling it. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Which, if you think about that question, it makes me believe that it it actually could imply that doing just that, selling it and giving it to the poor, was actually the regular pattern. It was consistent with the patterns of ministry that they were actually used to. Like, I mean, it makes sense. Jesus tells a rich young ruler, sell all of your proceeds and give it and give that, or sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. If we look through the gospels, much of Jesus' ministry was dedicated to the poor. It makes sense. Money comes in, then we use it for the ministry. We have a system in place. We have a way of doing things here. We have a strategy. We have a model. That's where their minds were at. They were focused on a model of ministry. Now, Judas, obviously, I mean, mean, he, he really had no conception of who Jesus actually was. He was focused on this model because of what it could do for him. And no wonder Mary's extravagance wasn't met with approval. They didn't approve of it. In the midst of calm down, take it easy, that's too much, you look foolish, this is ridiculous. Her response was, no, don't you recognize who he is? This is all for him. Like, I'm pouring my life out for him. Don't you understand who he is? The text says that she was preparing him for burial. Like, I mean, she had no idea what she was doing in this moment. Jesus prophesies. He he creates significance for that moment. But the reality is, is that who he was, the gospel itself, the fact that he had come to die for the sins of the world, gripped her soul because of who he was. And that gripping compelled her to pour her life onto him, pour everything out, pour her passion, pour her greatest possession potentially, out on to Jesus. She poured herself out. Where is your focus this morning? Oftentimes we we come in here focused on so many different things, desperate for community. That's a good one, right? We're focused on, hey, can we find that significant other so that we can finally have a wife or a husband and kids and settle down? What's your focus? Are you focused on getting a good experience or feeling motivated for the rest of the week? Are we focused on external things or are we focused on him? Do we realize who he is? The gospel creates a life too powerful to be contained by our pitiful little structures and expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just devote ourselves to Jesus in whatever way we want and kind of usurp the scriptures. No, no, no. We devote ourselves to Jesus and his words in a way that looks extravagant to the world. And it also, I'm really not saying that the church shouldn't have structure and that we shouldn't have model, right? Those things are important, but that model must be one that is utterly flexible if it is to contain the life that the Spirit can produce in someone who is utterly focused on Jesus. We must let the life in us produce the structure, not the other way around. The early church met, or had community and met from house to house 
because they had life, not in order to get it. Think about that. The early church met from house to house and had profound community because they had received life, not in order to get it. The reason they were a force so powerful in our culture was because their church wasn't their model for church life. Jesus was their model. They weren't following a form or a function or a format. They were following a person. Jesus. Jesus is our model. Are we focused on him? Are we allowing him to to create our expectations and to create our desires? Are we allowing him to be the motivating factor beneath at the bedrock of our souls that enable us to gather? Or is it something else? Or do we just feel like we're supposed to be here out of obligation? Right? Like, are are we here for him or something else? Where is your focus? Two, his presence is priority. So this moment with Mary would have created so much tension in the room because it would have been recognized as morally offensive. It was considered improper for a woman to let her hair down in public, especially in front of men who weren't her husband. A woman's hair was her crown of glory. This was an intimate expression of devotion and love and passion. It it makes this moment really, really awkward, but she didn't care. She wasn't concerned with her image or social like expectations in the room. The only approval she needed came from the lips of Jesus. That's the only thing that she longed for. Her deep love for him was more potent than any other concern. And Jesus' last words here just grip me in verse eight. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. Now there's some beautiful things that we could say here around Jesus's heart for the poor, right? And unfortunately, this passage is oftentimes hijacked by people to justify their negligence to the poor, but that's an entirely different sermon and we don't have time to get into that one. What I want us to notice is just this last phrase, but you will not always have me. Jesus was physically present. And in about a month and some change, he would return to heaven. And he says, my presence takes priority. Now, what they didn't realize is that as Jesus' physical presence left, they would then receive his spiritual presence, the Holy Spirit that would infuse their lives and, and, be, and empower them to do the things that Jesus was doing. And actually, it would mean that Jesus would be present with them wherever they go. So that means for us 2,000 years later, we still should hold true to what Jesus says here. As the church, as the people of God, Jesus' presence takes priority. It takes priority in our lives. It's the first thing. Now, I'm not saying that other things aren't important. If you look at the life of Jesus's ministry, there's a lot of things he does that we're supposed to then model our lives after. But presence takes priority, right? I mean, like we we need to recognize that. And in the conversation around the poor, it's hard to be in Jesus's presence for too long and not end up where he goes, right? And he spends a lot of time with the poor. But presence takes priority. Is that our priority in our churches today? 
Is that our priority as followers of Jesus? Are we enamored with his presence? Are we longing to be with him? Are we focused on the reality? Are we asking ourselves, how is he present in the room? What is he doing? Jesus said, um, I only do what the Father is doing. He says, I see what the Father is doing and I join him. Are we watching? Are we looking around the room waiting for Jesus to reveal himself to us and then go join him in whatever he's doing? Are we recognizing the presence of Jesus? Like I, so I, I shared this story in pre-gathering prayer a couple weeks ago, I think, but I was a, a, a two and three-year-old choir director from seventh grade to 12th grade in my church back home in Texas. It was the most fun I ever had. Like, I mean, because, I mean, you can't really get uh, a bunch of two-year-olds to sing coherently, but it's cute, and you have a lot of fun. Um, But every once in a while, they didn't want to sing, and they just wanted to play hide-and-seek, and I was like, down, let's play some hide and seek. And they'd hide in this small room and it was always this ridiculous scene. Like they'd hide behind like random things but you could always see them. So I'd close my eyes, I'd count to 10 and then they'd all be hiding. And it's like, if this, like shrink all of this, this is a little kid table and I'm hiding behind it like this. And they're like, come find me. You know, it's like this weird moment where it's like, where are you? Obviously you can see them. (laughs) You know exactly where they are. They're giggling if you can't see them. So it's like, it's obvious, right? And if it's not, then that's a scary moment. It's like, oh gosh, where'd they go? But like, I think, I think that's what Jesus, the presence of God is like, if we're paying attention. He's hiding behind things in an obvious way. He's like, come find me. I'm here. Do you notice? Are you looking? Are we, are we playing hide and seek with Jesus I was reminded of something la- or a couple weeks ago, actually. Why, why do we worship like this? Why do we do it the way that we do it? It's nothing innovative, and I'm sure that people have done this particular setup and with the stripped down a guitar and two vocals before. So, uh, but for our normal Sundays, we haven't actually done like a full band at all. Why aim for simplicity? That's intentional. Are we against full bands? No, absolutely not. In fact, we'll probably, that will probably come in the future, but that's not the w- reason we've kept it simple. You might think that it's because we're a church plant and we haven't been around for a long time and you know, small or doing something, like doing a few things good is better than doing a lot of things poorly. And that's a really good reason, but like, that's not our purpose. Let me tell you the reason why, and I can say it in one sentence. We want to learn the difference between the presence of God and a good worship set. Now, that's not to say that our team isn't really good. We've got some amazing people like leading us into God's presence. You guys are amazing. But will we offer God our praise and unbridled adoration because that's what he deserves, not because there's a great sound coming? Are we capable of leaning into God's presence without all of the frill and everything else. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Those things can be good. And when people like devote themselves to production in a way that praises Jesus and honors him, like that's great, praise God, I want more of that. I want people to use their gifts to be able to like glorify the Lord. But the reason we haven't done that so far is because I want us to be able to worship him and be attentive to him no matter what environment we are in. 
Will we be a church that ministers to his presence like, many, like Mary does without the constraints of pride and self-consciousness? Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes when you're in a room with just a guitar and some vocals, it feels a little bit more like um, vulnerable. <laughs> like there's not as much sound. Now we turn things up so that it's not like that. But if you've ever been in a home with just a guitar, sometimes it can feel awkward. Are you able to set aside your own pride, your own self-conscious like motives, and actually lean into God's presence in worship? Are you able to devote to him everything, your, ador- your adoration, your attention, your praise? So Robert Stearns writes this, and believing that this is going to result in the church one day, that this will actually happen in our future. He says, the heart of Mary, and I didn't give this to you, I'm I'm sorry, this is just a quote I'll read. The heart of Mary will be released and we will sit at his feet and know the penetrating gaze of his blazing eyes. Consuming us, he will be our all in all. The alabaster box of our lives will be gladly broken and the fragrant oil of our lives wasted on him will fill the air. The presence or presence will be valued over service, brokenness over productivity, and intimacy over conquest. Let me say those three again. Presence will be valued over service, brokenness over productivity, and intimacy over conquest. Will we be the kind of church that at the moment of the revelation of Christ's presence, consuming us, our natural inclination will be to fall at his feet and worship him over and over and over again. Will we be a community that is so enamored with the love of Christ that we are willing to pour our lives out for him? Who will take on this mantle? Is there any among us that will step into the reality of Mary here and follow in her footsteps, saying, I don't care how extravagant it is. In the midst of lesser than expectations that want to hold us back, whether that be our desire to not burn out, whether that be because it doesn't feel authentic in the moment. And by the way, like if your worship doesn't feel authentic, then it doesn't really matter. I'm sorry. Like, this is what he deserves. And that that offering becomes a sacrifice of praise. And I've learned that the process of gratitude, I mean, this is physiologically true. The more we praise, the more we offer thanksgiving to him, the more we hardwire our brains for gratitude, it creates neural pathways in our brains that enable us to feel more grateful, (laughs) So God has actually designed your brains to have the equation praise and then the emotions come. Then the feeling comes. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. Some of our deepest feelings, our convictions for praise, for honoring God, oftentimes aren't our strongest feelings. I mean, this is true for me at home. Like, I'll get home after work and literally just want to veg, not want to engage, like I'm exhausted, and that strong desire to just tune out and read a book, take a bath and go home, like, or like go to bed, 
like, is a strong desire that I have to fight against. But the deepest desire is to love and be present to Eloise and my wife, to listen to them. So if we take that scenario and apply it to church, right? So, like, no, no, I want to be my most authentic self. So I'm going to ignore them, tune out, and just go to bed. That doesn't work, right? Why does it work in the house of God? Why aren't we willingly recognizing that the deepest longings of our souls are for Christ to fill us? And so we step into praise and adoration towards him. Will we be a people that pours our life out for him? Would you guys stand with me? And if you wouldn't mind, uh, yeah, worship team, come on up. If you wouldn't mind putting your hands out in front of you, I just want to have a moment with Jesus. We love to take just a few moments as a community to like, actually center ourselves on the Lord and allow the Spirit to continue to minister to us. So I just want to allow like, the Spirit to do just that. Whatever he's speaking to you in this moment, just invite him into more. Let him say what he wants to say to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we give our life to you. The last thing I want to leave with you is this phrase, step away from the dance. So in our story, there's this cosmic play going on, on the stage. Everybody has their part, their role, and they don't realize how this play is ending. They don't recognize that Jesus is about to redeem the world. And that's, that's us so often. We don't know what part we play in God's cosmic plan. We don't know what is going on, what conversations the Trinity is having amongst himself. We don't know what part we play. But what if we could? What if we, like Mary, I wonder if we, in recognizing the ultimate reality of where this story ends, wouldn't more willingly pour our lives out for Jesus. And if you don't know the end of the story here, let me ruin it for you. Jesus wins. He's coming back in glory. He will wipe away every tear. Every wrong will be made right. The goodness of the Lord will cover the earth. There will be peace. All sin and brokenness will be eradicated from the earth, and we will be in perfect union with him. 
God wins, game over, end of story, it is finished. We know the end of the story. Father, I just ask that the reality of your return and your sacrifice for us and the goodness that you have provided for us would enable us to step away from the dance to the balcony and see the beauty of your cosmic play and then step in with more devotion and adoration and praise. Help us see what part we play. Teach us to pour our lives out. 